Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, I'm Scott Sosh. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the National League Champions Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. All right, our guest is Derek Schiller, president and CEO of the Atlanta Braves. And Derek, you'll like this. I mean, if you're listening to the show, you know, after I say hello, I'm Scott Soshnick, we like to have Eben be creative and come up with sort of a fun intro. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell tales here and say he had to do take two on this episode. <laughs> and I guess it's, he not, wasn't. it's not often, Scott, that I have to go again. They're not always good, but yeah, I had to do it a second time. That's so. the equivalent of a check swing, but now you took a full whack. So good, good. Derek, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. And I, hey, listen, if, if it takes two to pronounce or to get out that we're the National League champions and we're playing in the World Series, so be it. <laughs> Could do a hundred yeah. takes of that, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not tiring of hearing, you know, super, or, uh, World Series and Atlanta Braves in, in the same breath. But I want to go like 30,000 feet, if I may, because there aren't many people who can have this discussion, Derek. But the, the Braves are part of Liberty Media, which is a publicly traded entity. What is the difference? Are there restrictions? What are the what are sort of the shackles or what are the freedoms? What are the benefits of operating under the umbrella of a publicly traded company? I think it just means that we have a lot more lawyers and accountants. Mainly. <laughs> oh, OK, yeah. Well, yeah, it's hard to get those press releases out. It's got to go through like seven people. Yeah, um, actually, you know, this topic has come up quite a bit, uh, especially recently. So last night we was game one of, of the World Series here in Houston, and we actually hosted Greg Maffei, the CEO of Liberty Media, uh, as well as a few other people from Liberty Media. And, you know, we were talking about this very topic, um, the topic of it doesn't make sense or what are the positives or negatives of a corporately owned team. And one of the things that I said to him and, and we'll say to you guys is we actually think this is one of the best ownership scenarios maybe in all of professional sports, because they give us complete freedom to do all the things that we need to do in order to be successful, both on the field and off the field. Uh, and, 
you know, the very first part of that is making sure that um, we are positioned in the right way. We have the right resources. Um, but it really is reliant upon our chairman and, and our control person in MLB speak, uh, Terry McGurk. He makes all of the decisions that are of, of the highest stature for the organization. And so those don't ultimately go to Liberty Media. Um, so long story short is we're free to do the types of things that we need to do to be successful, which has ultimately led us to the position that we're in, which is the World Series. So I think all in all, we love being owned by Liberty Media. Okay. Now the NFL, as you know, forbids corporate ownership because they do not want sort of the, the quarterly ups and downs to drive business decisions long-term for sports teams. Do, do you think there's merit? I mean, and, uh, things are going very well in the NFL, but is it merit to the position or seeing Liberty, seeing MSG saying, you know, with the way these companies are set up now is sort of portfolio platform companies, that there's re- very little risk in that. And you can take a longer term view with the sports assets. You know, it's hard to say. I, I don't want to comment about what happens in another league. I think this scenario is working for us. Baseball thought it was um, worthwhile and obviously approved it when Liberty Media uh, purchased the team from Turner. And, you know, that's a good example. We were, a, we were part of a much larger uh, company previously in, in Turner Broadcasting, AOL Time Warner. Um, so the differences aren't actually that unique. The one thing that's changed since that point in time is that Liberty Media spun us into a, a tracking stock um, so we can be evaluated and traded on our own sitting on NASDAQ. And, you know, when people look at that stock, I think they probably have some wonderment about, you know, how does the stock go up or down? And, um, you know, I think we do as well, by the way. How often Uh, do you look at it? Yeah, I was curious. Yeah, I mean, look, I I would say I look at it almost every day just because of a more of a curiosity factor. I don't think we're 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 not making decisions on a day to day basis that has to do with what the stock might do day to day. We are taking a long term view of things. And just, you know, operating a professional sports franchise with the best interests of mind, which for us is always trying to win a World Series. Right now we're in a position to do that. But, you know, that's that's really the mantra of a professional sports team or a Major League Baseball team specifically. You know who checks it all the time? Those executives that have compensation tied to stock price. <laughs> Those are the people who look every day. <laughs> it, it, it's, I, don't, there's, there's, I don't think there's a single stock I look at every day, but I, I'm constantly amazed at how even minor pieces of news that I would probably think have, have no real long-term bearing on a company's performance can move stock up or down. Are there, are there times you look at, you see a big move and you're thinking, well, what, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What just it, happened? It, it, there, there definitely have been times where the stock has either moved up or down and we can't figure out why. We, and, and usually wow. it follows something to do with, you know, what's going on on the street, having nothing to do with us. Right. And it's mm-hmm. not a, it's not a decision or a, or a situation that that happens with the Atlanta Braves specifically, um, you know. Ultimately, um, it's it's a nice thing to be out there, and actually, we think it's it's pretty cool. There should be probably more stories interested in it. I'm glad you guys are talking about it because you know if you're a fan of professional sports or specifically the Atlanta Braves, you can actually own a piece of it by 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 investing into it. You know, and that I, that probably takes fandom to an even greater level, right? And so. You know, there's there's kind of a, a nice um, opportunity there, uh, but it doesn't affect the way that we run things on a day to day basis in any way, shape or form. 
I'm happy that you happen to mention Turner. And that, of course, was Ted Turner. I am of a certain age where I was a, a kid growing up in New York, but could watch the Atlanta Braves all the time as part of the Superstation. You know, Eben gets all this streaming stuff in his young days. He can see anything he wants anytime, you know, follow any club. But like, I think it's a perfect example of of sort of the scale and what people are trying to do now and direct to consumer and that this kid at age 10 in New York became a Rick Mailer fan because it, it, it always seemed to me like that guy pitched both ends of a doubleheader. Like every time I watched the Braves game, it was like, how is Rick Mailer pitching again? But uh, I mean, what did we learn from sort of superstation experience to, I think if we're looking forward with media and teams, how everybody's trying to go over the top, direct to consumer, and be able to scale far outside your market. So a few thoughts. First of all, the it, we can't talk about what might happen in the future um, and think about what we were in the past with respect to being on a superstation without um, really having a deep appreciation for that. So, um, you know, the reason why there's so many fans around the entire country, uh, in addition to the Braves being great and having great branding and great executives running their team, right, is that we were on a superstation and had those broadcasts available to all those people for all those years. So credit to Turner Broadcasting and Ted and everything for launching that superstation and putting us out there. The lesson to be learned moving forward from that, I suppose, and how it might relate into this this uh, transformation that is the direct consumer environment is that sports has always been a piece of content that drives uh, the innovation and the distribution and the types of things that have been significant in new media. It happened way back when in the days of, you know, transistor radio, right? Sports were some of the very first pieces of programming that drove, you know, the listener listening um, that happened on transistor radio. Fast forward into the television era, same thing. Sports was the content, the programming that drove that. And I think the same Fast forwarding now, again, the same is going to be true with respect to D to C and, um, and, and, and how sports is going to play such a pivotal role in the advancement of, of D to C. And I think baseball is of, of even greater significance in that, particularly because we have such a uh, depth of programming, the number of games, as well as you know, all the ways in which people like to consume Major League Baseball, the stats, the analytics, all those things make it a great um, uh, transition opportunity into the D2C world, ultimately. We are chatting with Derek Cho, the president and CEO of the Atlanta Braves, the National League champion Atlanta Braves. Derek, you get a front row seat. I love these discussions because so much of what drives revenue is media these days. And we'll get to real estate and tech. I, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But you have a front row seat uh, at what's happening in Formula One, also a Liberty Media asset. And I keep hearing that it's Netflix alone. This Netflix series is driving the interest. Jacob Feldman put out a thread the other day on Twitter where he was like, no, 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 there, there were a lot more things that happened. Not that Netflix series didn't hurt. It was Netflix you, for me. Uh, okay. Well, you also don't even know what a transistor radio is. So, you know, come on, give me a break. Um, what, what do you think were the drivers of this newfound U.S. popularity for F1? Well, I, I, I think fundamentally the sport was already doing well uh, on a large scale. And so it really was taking, you know, not a new sport, not something that people were completely unfamiliar with, but a sport that was 
um, was very successful elsewhere and trying to find some of those key ingredients that could um, turn it into, um, you know, sort of a sexy thing that that happened here in the United States. So, you know, I think uh, I, Liberty Media and F1 specifically have have done a great job of positioning that. And and obviously the Netflix, um, the Netflix situation was a enormous catalyst. Um, but I think there was already a foundation of people that very much wanted to participate in that sport. And once they learned more, they were like, wow, this is actually really cool. I want to jump in. I mean, uh, again, Maffei was here yesterday talking about how in this most recent Austin race, uh, they had whatever it was, 130, 140,000 people per day that were showing up for this race. And they probably could have sold another 40, 50,000 tickets. What are the synergies? If, I, if I'm Greg Maffei, I'm, I'm, telling, I'm calling you, I'm calling my executives at F1, say, what do we do together? How can we cross-promote? How, how do we work together? Well, and I, I, I think we're doing that, right? I mean, that's one of the advantages of being in a company like this is you do have some of those unique opportunities to, to go together with those types of things. And we've already begun discussions with them and had, you know, a variety of things, everything from, you know, expansion of the hospitality opportunities that are uh, available at an F1 race. Um, you know, w- w- there's some lessons learned in in United States or North American professional sports leagues that could be applied to some of the F1 races um, and and kind of had their approach to ticketing and 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 fandom in that way. Um, so, yeah, I think we're already working together on that and hopefully more to come. Let's shift back to baseball, Derek. Uh, you guys have been in the postseason, I, I believe, for four straight years now. You've played a lot of postseason games in the, in the past few years. On the balance sheet, what what how does a postseason game differ from a regular season game at Truist Park? Uh, is the, how how much bigger is the gate? If it is bigger, are there more concessions, less concessions sold as people are kind of more in, engrossed with what's happening on the field? What does that look like on on the Braves balance sheet? Yeah, so the substantial difference is really the gate, the, the so the ticket side. Uh, I think there's some modest opportunities with respect to concessions, but. You know, our perspective is we need to be a little bit cautious that we're not uh, being too opportunistic and gouging people, if you will. Um, you know, there is higher costs and, and and things like that that we may pass along a little bit. But for the most part, the concessions is going to look fairly similar to a regular season game. The gate, however, is substantially different, especially once you get to the World Series. So on the on the on the division series DS rounds. You know, it's it's fairly similar to a, a regular season game, um, a marquee regular season game, you might call it. Once you get to the LCS, uh, and again, especially the World Series, there's really substantial differences, particularly because the demand on tickets is so high. And so we're, we're really trying to make sure that there's a yield that we're capturing associated with those tickets. Uh, and, and with that, one of the things that we've done and a few other teams have been pretty active in is the dynamic pricing of postseason tickets, um, which didn't used to be the norm, right? You would set your prices four weeks ago or whenever it was, and then you'd, you'd, you'd stay consistent with those um, regardless of what the demand might be in your respective marketplace. Uh, I think w- once the, once the uh, ticket pricing has been finalized here for, or the games have been played rather for the, the upcoming games in Atlanta, you're going to likely see some really, really encouraging and startling numbers in, in some ways for what ticket prices are going to be in Atlanta. You know, we haven't been in a World Series in 22 years. And so the demand there is exceptionally high. And uh, we're trying to manage against that. How do you balance the idea that you want 
fans probably of all different economic classes to be able to attend even World Series games with the idea that, as you're saying, the Braves haven't been here in, in 20 years. There's obviously a ton of demand. There's probably a way to dynamically price this where most Braves fans couldn't even afford to go. How do you make sure that you're kind of feeding both the the the, 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 the supply and demand equation, but also making sure all fans have a chance to go to games? Yeah, sure. So I think first off, you know, when when a season ticket holder gets taken care of with pricing that is um, consistent and makes sense, and and they don't feel like that is overtly dynamically priced against them, that's great for us, right? We're taking care of the people that have been with us during the course of the regular season, eighty-one games of the of the of the regular season. So we don't we don't uh, we don't pump those prices up. But I think you know what's happened here especially over the past five, 10 years, is that with, with the prevalence of the secondary market, if we don't put that higher price on the tickets on the primary, you're going to have all these resellers scoop up our tickets and then just resell those for profit that they make with zero risk, in effect, associated with them. And so our, our, our view is um, we take care of the season ticket holders. We take care of those people that have been with us but if the demand is there on a single game ticket and and we're just playing in the marketplace the way that the marketplace has essentially been um, uh, created out there and, and what the marketplace is dictating, then I think that's all fair game for everybody. And Derek, I'm going to come with a Seinfeld moment. I mean, I know Braves fans won't love it, but since we got you, I mean, we've got to ask questions like, why did Mark Wohlers throw a slider to Jim Lairitz? <laughs> well, first off... You know, I used to work for the Yankees way back when. I, I know, I know. And and I do have a signed Jason Alexander uh, print. Um, <laughs> he 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 said he signed it something to the effect of you know to the real George Costanza out there. Um, and this was while I was working for the Yankees, obviously. So I do have that special Seinfeld connection. I appreciate those. Were you the assistant to the traveling secretary? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, years ago, that would have been, a, you know, could have had an NFT with that, right? That would That's have been right. a very valuable thing. You get to hang with a Mets game with Jerry Seinfeld. That's, That's all good. Right. Now, one thing we'd love to do is discuss teams as platform companies. And prospective owners tell me all the time, Derek, that if I'm evaluating an opportunity now, if it doesn't come with something else, Besides just sort of a ball club or a team, if there's no media opportunity, if that's all done, if there's no real estate opportunity, that's all done, then I'm not interested because that's where they want to flex and do things. You had a real estate opportunity with the battery. For folks who don't understand what the battery is, what it was, what you've created and how it works with the ballpark and the team, please explain. Yeah, sure. So uh, we built Truist Park uh, and opened it about five years ago. Um, we had, we had ended our relationship with Turner field, the lease expired and we were looking for new opportunities. Once we realized that, uh, we were not going to be able to stay at that location. And when we did, we ultimately settled on, uh, acquiring a much larger piece of property than just as necessary for a ballpark. And we ultimately acquired about 90 acres. The ballpark sits on approximately 15. So the rest of that acreage, we made a big financial commitment to building a mixed-use development that's composed of a lot of different uses within that, everything from commercial office buildings and space to uh, live music theater in combination with Live Nation to uh, retail and restaurants, uh, a, a apartment uh, complex as part of that, et cetera. And, and the ultimate goal of that 
was to uh, invest wisely so that we had a return that was going to be more consistent and have 365 day of year consistency associated with it from a business sense. And from a fan perspective, it was to give fans an opportunity to have a higher level of engagement as they're coming to the games, or even if they're not coming to the games when we're not having game day. So on game days, you can come much earlier and stay much later and have things to do around the ballpark. It's in effect hearkening back to the days where um, Wrigley Field or Fenway were so popular and still are, but very much so as a result of the neighborhoods around them as much as the venues themselves. And it's taking a little bit of that blueprint and applying it here in, in a modern way. And uh, suffice to say, it's been extremely successful. We're now on to our phase two, phase three opportunities of that, having just recently completed another commercial office uh, enterprise that's associated with the Battery Atlanta. So it's been electrified. And in fact, the most recent you know, LCS game where we clinched game six, we had 43,000 people in the ballpark and probably another 15 to 20,000 people that were on our footprint of the Battery Atlanta, all there enjoying that being close to the battery, being close to the Atlanta Braves and Truist Park. If, if we had sound effects for this show, if we were like the Z Morning Zoo, like I'd have the, this, the cash register right now. Ching, ching, <laughs> ching, ching. That's, that, that's what you want to hear. Go ahead, Evan. Well, I was going to ask, you, you kind of touched on it there, Derek, but how different do you think the economics of that real estate is if the stadium is not there? If the Braves are just a, a real estate developer um, doing a 75-acre mixed-use development, how important is having the stadium there to a lot of those economics you're talking about? Yeah, this is a this is a classic concept of chicken and egg, and I don't think either one happens without the other, right? Um, and and neither was first or last, right? We opened the Truist Park prior to the actual opening of most of the battery, um, and it caught up shortly thereafter. Um, but we were 100% committed to, to building the battery as part of this. So we looked at it as one enterprise, one opportunity, one master developed um, situation. And, uh, you know, I think the success in a lot of ways of the ballpark and of fans coming there, we were second in attendance for the entire league this year, for example. Um, the success of the ballpark is largely to do with people's view of coming to the battery and that enhanced experience that I talked about. Conversely, the success of the battery um, is helped because it's directly affiliated, associated uh, with the ballpark, with the Braves. Um, but again, it operates beyond the 81 baseball games. We talked on the podcast earlier this week about supply chain problems, how that's affecting sports teams, venues. I'm curious if, if that has affected your business at all, if it's food, if it's hard goods, apparel, merchandise, concessions, whatever it is, how that might be affecting if it is the Braves business right now. Significantly affected us uh, in lots of ways. So um, the more, I don't know if you call it mundane or strange, however you want to say it, but we, we were not able to successfully um, uh, get a bobblehead date um, completed because we had all of our bobbleheads stuck in a ship that was waiting in line at an L.A. port. And uh, we were literally getting, you know, uh, um, updates to the minute. Is our, is our ship going to come in and are we going to be able to get our bobbleheads? We ultimately pushed that bobblehead date to next year. It wasn't a huge impact, if you will. But we've seen things like, um, you know, we, we've had shortages in association with some of our vendors. You know, we've seen some of that in the beverage industry, both, you know, Coca-Cola in our case, Miller Coors, getting, you know, cans and, and you know, variety of products in. 
Um, we've had all sorts of complications. Those companies, thankfully, have worked through that, worked well with us on that. We've seen that on the merchandise side quite a bit because, you know, that's such a long lead. So you have a lot of merchandise that's coming from overseas, uh, a lot of it coming from Asia. And with Asia being shut down, we've th- seen things like whether it's hats or shirts or jerseys, a tremendous strain on on that, which has impacted us to probably some pretty high, maybe seven figure plus types of, of business impact to us. I think I just got an alert that Liberty Media dipped 9%. <laughs> hey, we're Greg, in the world series, so we're making up for that all now. Yeah Greg, yeah, Greg Buffet on line one. <laughs> what, what did you tell the Sportacast? I want to know. And by the way, it just came to me. One of the things we pride ourselves also on this show is like the crazy things that pop in your head that nobody ever says, we say them. <laughs> so like when you said Turner Field, I was like, wow, wouldn't Fonda Field be great if it would have followed Turner? That, that could have been done. You're going to get that, me in trouble. I'm going st- no. to stick to the script, man. <laughs> All right. I, I'm going to end on this, Derek, because I am so old. Like I dealt with your dad years and years ago. And what, one of my favorites, if people don't know who Harvey Schiller is, I, I strongly recommend you go to Google and, and check him out. And I mean, it would be easier for me to list the jobs and the positions he has not had in sports than what he did. So I'm just curious what the dinner conversations were like with dad around what was it just straight up sport or was it sport business? Was it things like Yankee nets or, or SEC or U S Olympic committee? You know, Hey, I, today I had to worry about sponsors with Tanya Harding and, uh, and Nancy Kerrigan. What, what was the dinner table conversation like around the sports business? Well, topic? first of all, I mean, my dad had a profound impact on me as an individual. I think, you know, most, most parents obviously do, but he also had a profound impact on me as a in my professional career because my professional career has a lot of similarities or at least learnings from uh, some parts of his career. You know, his career Air Force before he got into uh, other parts of his career, which included especially a lot of things in the in the sports business, United States Olympic Committee, SEC, etc. My my uh, the way I'd say it is like. I probably learned more um, intrinsically than was taught more directly. And I I guess what I mean by that is um, it was the observing things that I learned the most from how he conducted himself relationships wise, et cetera, um, the ways in which the business worked and how I would witness that. It wasn't we would come home over the dinner table and go, hey, son, let me tell you about, uh, you know, the the television industry and how cable distribution works. Right. I mean, that's not exactly how things worked back in 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 the day. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm here certainly on the shoulders of him. There's no doubt about it. All right. Speaking of shoulders, I'm curious, how, how does your pitching rotation line up? I mean, I think you're, you're looking good with Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, and Avery. I think you guys are very strong. Yeah, we, we, that, that was a good pitching rotation, but <laughs> we might need to get you a current roster update. Um, <laughs> as you may or may not have seen, first of all, our pitching has been fantastic all year long. Um, but, we, you know, look, we've been, we've been faced with some real big challenges. We had just another one last night, which we'll have to manage through, through the rest of the World Series, where – we have Charlie Morton who got hit in the leg and broke his leg. And so won't be coming back as a starting pitcher, but you know, it's next man up around here and um, we're in the world series and we got to do everything we can do to, to win baseball games. And uh, we won the first one and hopefully we'll win uh, at least three more because um, we're, we would be so proud and excited to bring our community, bring Atlanta a world series championship team. That would be so fun. 
All right, Derek Schiller, thanks so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. You got it, guys. Thanks for having me. I love it, Eben. We we got to talk about transistor radios. You've probably never listened to a game on a transistor radio. I used to have to hide with a little radio and an earpiece so my parents wouldn't know that I was awake, you know, watching the games late or listening to the games late. So um, you, you really had a nice, nice bit of memory lane plus look ahead with Derek on sports business. Yeah, it's a fascinating one, by the way, when you mentioned the Braves being on TV all the time. I did live through that era. I, I kind of thought of the Braves and Notre Dame football in the same bucket. Yeah, as yeah. These were teams that were not local, but somehow on the 10 channels that I had in, in our den, uh, I was able to watch all of their games. And, and it gives, I'm sure it was extremely valuable for the Braves, um, but it also kind of gives, I think for people around the country, an air of kind of national mystique to those to those franchises and those teams. And I think that's really valuable as well. Absolutely. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media editor is Cor Veltman and the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Podcast Network.